Hi, thank you for listening to the Spotlight Report, our weekly podcast in which we sit down and speak with current academics about their life and research in lab. If you like the Spotlight Report, you can subscribe on iTunes, like our Facebook page, or find it on any common podcast app. You can also directly find the podcast on our website, which is loft.optics.arizona.edu backslash podcast. Please comment any questions or ideas for people you would like us to interview in the future. Additionally, if you have more feedback, feel free to email us at thespotlightreport at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Hi, this week we are sitting down with Neil Momsen. He's just finished his third year in optical engineering and he works in biomedical imaging. Uh, so thank you, Neil, for being here. Thanks for having me on. Yep. Yeah. Go back to medical area. Yeah. So you must be really excited, right? <laughs> yeah. For me, this is my, uh, my background as an undergrad was in biomedical uh, engineering as well. So this is right up my alley and also over my head. So that's always <laughs> nice. Um, so to start off with, why don't we talk about what brought you into optics? All right. So I too actually came from the biomedical engineering field. Mm -hmm. Uh, I did that for my bachelor's degree, uh, at Michigan tech. And then while I was there, I did a couple internships, uh, with 3M actually, and worked on a dental scanner while I was there with them. Uh, so basically it's meant to replace the, uh, the tray of goop, the, uh, molding material that they use when they want to make a model of your mouth. Huh. And hopefully they don't pitch it as that. Here's the tray of goop. Well, right. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> well, they pitch it as a replacement. <laughs> right. <thing>. So <laughs> it's a really unpleasant thing to, to get that tray in your mouth for five minutes. So they, they try to um, get around that. And so obviously mm -hmm. there's a lot of optics involved with that. So that was my first little foray into optics. And after a few classes and things like that, I, was, uh, I found out about the uh, College of Optical Sciences here and rest is history. Hmm. And uh, do you like it here in Tucson? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I like it here in Tucson. I, I love the College of Optical Sciences. It's, mm. it's a great department, and all the research and work that's going on is very interesting. Yeah, and you uh, you and I have hiked before, so I know that you make good use of Tucson. I do. Uh, I enjoy the mountains. Yeah. All around yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so your you, what we're going to talk about today is SPECT imaging. And normally, we open this up by saying, can you describe your research to a child? But this, in fact, might be yeah, beyond maybe. explaining to a child. Mm, yeah, maybe to me. <laughs> yeah, explain it, explain it to, to, yeah, to us. To All us, right, or someone yeah. who, who's not familiar with optics. or Right, so, so SPECT stands for Single Photon Emission CT, Computed Tomography. So, you know, everybody has heard of or has had a, some sort of a CT scan at some point. Um, and so they know basics, the basics of it, you know, there's a X-ray source and a detector and it um, images your body as it goes around. And then using some complex math, that's a little bit too high, <laughs> too, too high level for this sort of discussion. We'll get into that um, later. Yeah, well, yeah, we can get into it. Um, they basically figure out, um, so the T part of it, tomography, um, tomo means slice. And mm -hmm. so it, it basically reconstructs the slice by slice um, reconstruction of your body. 
Mm -hmm. So that's what CT is. It uses x-rays. So SPECT is a little bit different in that it uses gamma rays. Um, and so what happens is there's a radioactive isotope inside the body that when it decays, it um, releases a gamma ray. So these gamma rays are higher energy, lower wavelength than x-rays. And so what they, what they do actually is they are targeted towards some sort of some portion of the body. Mm -hmm. And then the same thing happens as in CT where you end up collecting all these gamma rays and you end up doing mostly the same type of math to invert that process and get a slice-by-slice -slice reconstruction of where this radioactive isotope is. Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit different than CT in that CT gives you a very structural representation of, you know, you say your brain. It'll say, well, here's your, um, your cerebrum, here's mm -hmm. your cerebellum, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas SPECT will say, here's where this certain molecule is, and it gives you a very functional uh, viewpoint into your brain. Mm -hmm. So when I, from my background in biomedical uh, work, I, I could see that being super applicable for targeting metabolism or yes. targeting what, like you're saying, like what, what part of your body is being active at whatever time. That's exactly it. Um, kind of the, the cousin to SPECT is um, something called positron emission tomography. And it's, it's very similar in that it also uses radioactive isotopes um, targeted to a certain area of the body. And, and one mm. of the main um, workhorses for PET imaging is um, using glucose trackers. Hmm. And so they use that in cancer imaging uh, because cancer, as you may or may not know, um, demands quite a bit of glucose. And so it tracks that glucose consumption. Hmm. Yeah, great. I think I have mentioned a little bit, but what is this technology always used for in our daily life? Mm -hmm. yeah, well, hopefully when, not daily. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. Not, not everybody's daily life, but right. when somebody has some accident or whatever. Because mm -hmm. when I first look at this, or in my brain, it's like when I watch a TV show and somebody have a, yeah, I don't yeah. know, something happened to them and they go to the hospital and the doctor say, hey, maybe you have to do this. Right. So with CT, um, you know, a lot of people have those for the brain, scan your brain, basically, mm -hmm. this is one of the big ones. Um, also looking at anything in your abdomen, um, they can track various things with that. Um, one of the other things is they'll look at your heart. Um, they can inject these uh, contrast agents that show up very dark on your CT scans. And so they'll look at your blood vessels and see if any of them are uh, obstructed by fatty plaques mm -hmm. and things like that. SPECT, on the other hand, um, the main uses in SPECT are either in brain scans, again, for the functional type imaging. So they'll use it uh, in certain diagnoses of various brain conditions, uh, psychological diseases and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, but then the other one, the other, I guess the main one probably is um, something called myocardial perfusion. So after someone has like a heart attack or, or something like that, um, what they do is they inject, again, this, um, in this case, it's a technetium isotope. That's actually like the, the very big workhorse for spec to inject technetium for it. Um, and the technetium circulates in your blood and then it goes into your myocardium, the walls of your heart, muscular walls. And what it should look like in a normal scan then, um, as you reconstruct it, is it'll look more or less like a donut because you're looking at a top-down mm -hmm. version of your heart. So it should look like a donut and that means that your, your blood is circulating to all the different portions of your heart. However, if you have something like a heart attack, it basically looks like someone took a bite from that donut. Um, and so there's a little kind of a defect or cleft in, inside that um, heart wall. Hmm. And 
just for clarity's sake, um, you, you spoke about the isotope that people will have to ingest, or it's, I think if they're doing lungs, they can inhale it. Mm -hmm. There's various Correct. ways to get it in the body, but basically what this is, is a radioactive isotope, and when it decays, it emits gamma rays. Yes. Okay. Yeah, so when, when you have a radioactive isotope, there's a couple different ways, or there are a couple different um, methods for it to decay. You know, it can eject you know, a positron, a neutron, an electron, or in this case, it can just decay and produce a gamma ray. Right. Okay. So, um, is it, you spoke about uh, PET or P, P, uh, positron emission tomography. Could you compare it as well, kind of to? I think people are really familiar with getting an x-ray. Like you broke a bone, you get an x-ray. Or MRIs for like tissue analysis or damage. Sure. Um, so MRI and CT are similar in that in, in terms of the scales that they can look at and some of the different types of tissues that they look at. Um, they are a little different in that um, CT is cheaper is one of the, <laughs> the main differences. Um, MRI obviously is a little bit better because it doesn't involve any sort of ionizing radiation and get a little bit concerned about that, but typically as, as long as you don't have too many CT scans, it's not really a major issue. Not the daily, um, the daily CT Right, scan. yeah, you don't want to get too many of those CT scans. Um, and x-rays, you know, x-rays obviously are cheaper than all of them, but they only give you limited information because it's really only these, this kind of projection information that you get. Uh, so, and then SPECT, SPECT is obviously different from all of those, kind of like I said earlier, where it, it gives you a lot more functional information versus the, the structural. And so because of that, a lot of times what they'll do is they'll actually combine using SPECT and, say, CT or MRI. Mm -hmm. um, and so if you can get both of those images simultaneously or close to simultaneously, you can overlay them and say, well, um, you had all this functional activity, uh, but now we know it's exactly in this part of your brain. Right. Huh. Yeah, well... Maybe for this one, we can upload a picture of like a, like a CT scan. Um, yeah, definitely. Along with like a MRI, just so people can kind of compare it. So, all right. So let's get into the meat of this. Uh, all right. We have someone ingesting a radioactive isotope in some way. They lay on uh, the spect table. They go on the machine, and how is it optics? How do we? How do we image this? It's, yeah, it's a little bit different than uh, your conventional optics, uh, especially you, know, you can't use lenses with gamma rays uh, because like x-rays, gamma rays, uh, the difference in refractive index for lens changes very minimally. And so there's basically no refraction that occurs. Same thing with mirrors. It's very difficult to do any sort of um, focusing mechanism with that. So because of that, the focusing mechanism actually ends up being like a pinhole camera. Mm -hmm. um, and so you basically just have a hole inside of your aperture um, and that selects out, you know, a certain portion of the rays that will be emitted from your object. So after that happens, after you get your gamma rays that are emitted and they pass through your pinhole collimator, um, what ends up happening is it, it'll hit what's called a scintillation crystal. And the scintillation crystal, uh, as the gamma ray interacts with it, um, it deposits all of its energy, eventually, inside the, the crystal. And all that energy gets turned into visible photons. Not all of it, actually, but most of it uh, turns into visible photons, thousands of visible photons. And these are all collected, in the end, by uh, photomultiplier tubes. 
which are high gain, pretty low noise detectors. So the issue with that is that these photomultiplier tubes are pretty large. They're not like a pixel size where you can have them on micron scales. They're like an inch in diameter or, or sometimes larger than that even. Uh, and so because of that, you can't you know, use conventional techniques in terms of knowing exactly where um, exactly where our gamma ray hit. Mm-hmm. Um, and as, you know, obviously the other thing too is that as the gamma ray interacts with the scintillation crystal, the, the light doesn't all go in one direction, the scintillation light. So you have visible light spreading out throughout the entire crystal. And so one event ends up affecting multiple uh, photomultiplier tubes. Mm-hmm. So after you get all that signal inside your photomultiplier tubes, you have to do some sort of processing mechanism to determine hopefully exactly where the gamma ray hit on the scintillation crystal. And then from there, it's kind of a backwards ray trace to figure out where it came from within your body. Mm-hmm. We're, we're gonna... So there's a lot there, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it seems like we can basically separate it into three parts, the camera, uh, the crystal, and the photo. The PMT. The yeah, the, the yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So maybe we can talk about the camera first. Okay. The, not only the camera, but the anger camera, I yeah. believe is what it's called. Right, yeah, and that's, so the anger camera, Mr. Anger, um, <laughs> developed this uh, a couple decades ago, uh, actually back towards the 50s or 60s, if I remember correctly. Uh, and so it's, it's a little interesting because the, the chief part of the hardware hasn't changed for the most part. Um, they still use very similar hardware to what they did back then. There's there's a couple kind of weird quirks in that um, back when it was developed, they used what was called parallel hole collimators. And so instead of having just one pinhole, what they had was a series, like a giant grid of tubes. Um, and so by doing that, uh, instead of with a pinhole, you select out different angles. Um, and with the parallel hole collimator, you end up just selecting out, you have one angle but then multiple positions. So that was how they figured out exactly where um, the gamma ray came from. Mm-hmm. And so most of the clinical scanners, I think all of them actually, still use parallel hole collimators, um, but pinhole collimators are um, steadily becoming more popular in um, research areas. And, uh, and uh, these parallel tube collimators, you're basically, when we think of uh, light, we can consider... We sometimes consider it a ray to simplify it, mm-hmm. uh, meaning that we're assuming it's going in a straight path. And basically, if there's any ray that's not traveling directly along the path of that tube, it's eliminated. Yeah, more or less. It's not a perfect system, obviously, because you have to have a finite uh, right. diameter to your tube. And so, yeah, that's where some of the error is introduced in those systems is you get some rays that are just barely going off from mm-hmm. straight, straight on. Um, and then there's some issues too with rays getting through the walls of the the uh, parallel holes, hmm. um, and so if they do that, that's all statistical right. in nature. Um, but if they do do that, then it introduces lots of error into your calculations. Huh. Okay. And then so we have the camera aperture yes. or collimator, yeah. depending on how you look at it. Next is the scintillator crystal. Which I, this thing is filled with really great names. That's all yes. I can say. <laughs> yes, it is. So, yeah, the scintillation crystal, it's, in our case, uh, most 
these days, a lot of them are using, um, it's a sodium iodide crystal and they have to dope it with uh, thallium as well. Uh, and so what happens is your gamma ray will enter the crystal and then based on statistics actually is, is the base of it. Uh, as it, at some point inside the crystal, it'll deposit its energy. And when it deposits all its energy, it excites the electrons inside the crystal. Um, and as the crystal itself basically relaxes back down to ground state, it releases all these photons. Um, and so as the gamma ray enters the crystal and deposits energy, it excites multiple, multiple electrons, in some cases thousands. And so that's what's responsible for these, all these visible photons being emitted. But will it be really accurate, considering there are lots of stuff going to it, a high energy going to it? In terms of loss of energy or loss of... Uh, well, I think, I mean, at least in my mind, one of my primary concerns is you have this gamma ray going in and you've tried to make it collimated, mm -hmm. but what direction are these visible or ultraviolet... Uh, Photons that are then emitted from the crystal going are they are they additionally collimated? No, or? no, they're actually isotropically more or less isotropically emitted. So they're going everywhere. Oh. They're going everywhere. Okay. Wow. And so that's yeah, that's part of the trick is that when you uh, a lot of it actually comes most of the accuracy comes from calibration. And so mm -hmm. when you calibrate it, you end up seeing uh, what's called the mean detector response function from your your camera, your simulation crystal. And so when we measure that, we say, well, on average, you know, if we have a gamma ray that strikes a certain portion of the crystal, it'll produce this result in this PMT and this PMT. And, and it, we basically have a list of it, the, mean, the mean detector responses mm -hmm. to a gamma ray hitting the simulation crystal at a certain point. Okay. So gamma ray comes in, hits the crystal, it emits... Uh, now visible light or ultraviolet Correct. light, the light that we can deal with and emits it in all directions. Right. And there's basically kind of, it sounds like calibration or mapping of statistically based on this phenomenon where that gamma ray came from. Yes. And what's next? Then what's next is we take all these uh, signals that we get from our photomultiplier tubes uh, and one of the first things that we actually do is uh, we'll try to estimate the energy of the gamma ray uh, because it's not monochromatic at all in, in terms of the gamma rays that are emitted from your isotope. Uh, and so because of that, uh, we want to actually, uh, one thing that we want to be able to differentiate between are the gamma rays, the, what we'll call them the ballistic gamma rays, so the gamma rays that went straight from our isotope into our camera and interacted from the um, scattered photons that you know went off in one direction and then scattered and happened to enter our camera. Mm -hmm. um, and so when they scatter, typically it's um, Compton scattering, so it, it loses some of its energy in the process. And we can detect that energy by integrating the photomultiplier tube signal. And so because of that, we want to actually just get rid of those signals because they gave us very limited information. Or possibly incorrect information. Or, yeah, exactly. So. After we do that, um, then we can start to try to uh, estimate the position that it came from. And that's some of the statistical stuff that 
Uh, we we're gonna I think discuss later. We're gonna, oh, we're we're gonna discuss it now. Yeah, I, either we'll, way. We'll get into it. But let's first. Okay. I, I first want to really be sure that we build up this picture uh, of of the gamma ray oh, the camera. Ray yeah. yeah. Right. I just I want to okay. I want everyone to have a really good picture of how this thing works. And then, as crazy as it is, we'll get into the statistics and then additionally the, the linear algebra. But yeah. all right, sounds good. So yeah. So then after you estimate the position of your gamma ray. Um, like I was saying before, it's basically just a backwards ray trace mm -hmm. to an extent. There, there's um, an inversion process that goes along there um, to do what's called the tomographic reconstruction. And that gives you this the slice by slice right, right. Uh, representation of your object. Okay, so gamma ray comes off. Comes off in a direction, let's forget about everything else. It hits the scintillator crystal. Scintill Scintillation crystal. Scintillation crystal. It converts that really high energy photon into uh, a spread of lower energy photons, which emit everywhere. Yes. Those photons hit a photomultiplier tube. Have you used a PMT? No. Oh man, they're great. They're, they're cool. Pretty, they're really cool. They're you get cool. you get like one photon that hits it, mm -hmm. and it cascades and just goes off basically right. and you get a wow. huge response from it wow. it's really sensitive okay yeah and they're yeah. these cool little vacuum tubes yeah. anyways uh you get an array of responses because mm -hmm. you have an array of pmt tubes so right. these photons spread out the visible photons spread out hit them and you get an array and as i understood in the paper you you centroid it yeah uh at least that was in the old um the traditional anger camera, mm -hmm. they use what's called anger arithmetic. And, and it, yeah. <laughs> I it use was, that too. <laughs> it was, and it was essentially just a centroiding, okay, uh, okay. centroiding algorithm. There's a couple of issues with it in terms of uh, they had, there's some bias implicit mm -hmm. calculations. Um, and one of the kind of sad features about it is that you ended up discarding the very outer portions of your crystal. Uh huh. And so you're giving up, you know, a pretty large part of the area you're detecting area. Um, and so by introducing some of these newer statistical methods, uh, we can basically push our field of view out and uh -huh. um, use all those events. Okay, and that and that's really where we're. Well, there's there's statistics going through all these processes, yes. but that sounds like it'll. That's one one aspect where you're really utilizing statistics. Yes. Uh, statistical analysis. Before we get going, though, I want to. There's a qu random question I have, which is, do you do you know how these crystals are made, and do you have like an estimate of the cost? They're expensive. I can tell you that much. Um, I don't actually know how they're made. That is a very good question. Huh. Um, yeah. I'm just. I, have you worked with crystals in your? Mm, well, actually, there is one student from the medical school. They try to polish a crystal, but it seems like the method is quite strange. Where they're using a new material, so it's kind of poisonous, and <laughs> uh, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, and they cannot uh, be polished with any solution. Oh, is it sol it's soluble or? Uh, well, they say it may have some effect with the solution. Oh. So they just try to polish it with single particles. Well, it's, in his case, he just do something like that. Uh -huh. And he want to make it to be perfect flat. But anyway, maybe they just gave it, 
gave it up or find a new way. So after a while, they say, forget about it. We try to do it. <laughs> it's not worth it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In, in our lab, we do a little bit of polishing ourselves when it when it's necessary. Mm. Um, and so we do actually have a, a glove box to take mm. care of some of those ventilation yeah. issues and things like that. Yeah. It can be tricky. Uh, one of the other kind of a weird side note is that one of the other simulation crystals that people have used before is cesium iodide instead of sodium iodide. And that one, it's it's a strange one because it has to be vacuum sealed and everything because it's yeah. very um, reactive to water. Right. Um, so any moisture in the air really starts to, to mess it up and right. <laughs> make it kind of unusable. I'm trying to remember my my high school chemistry lessons. And I think, <laughs> like, I think we got... It, it couldn't possibly have been cesium. I know we have like a sliver of sodium that she oh, yeah. like dunked in water. Sodium. Yeah, and it's so beautiful. Yeah, yeah, pure sodium, pure yeah. Some of those other magnesium. These are all really. Re it sounds like they're all very reactive. Pretty reactive. Yeah. I don't. I don't know about you, but we're not. We're not chemists here. No. Christine was. We spoke to Christine last week, and she was. <laughs> no, we can call her up. Um, that is interesting, though. I know in optics. Uh, for lenses, we use crystalline substances. We use a sapphire, germanium yeah, yeah. for lenses, um, and we'll use what's the really poisonous one? Beryllium. I don't know. Sorry. They 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 use it for like space stuff because it doesn't heat up, but it's really poisonous. Yeah. And Matt Dubin, did you have you had Matt Dubin? Yeah. He yeah. has this famous story where they made a lens out of salt, uh, sodium chloride because it has great properties in the infrared, and apparently no one told the optician mm -hmm. that it was salt. <laughs> oh my so God. he thought you know he thought it was a glass uh -huh. lens, I guess. I don't know what he thought it was of. And he polish he's polishing it, polishing it, and then takes the tool away and there's no lens. And he went, Oh, oh my god. <laughs> 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 so that's a great prank. Maybe we'll yeah. pull it on you something. <laughs> um Okay, so we have a picture of the system. Yes. The gamma ray, you use interesting mechanics, really, to select your ray path. You use this expensive crystal, which might be poisonous as well, but you're converting this the gamma rays to visible light. It's uh, a statistical process, so you get a lot of light emitted in all directions. It hits an array of photomultiplier tubes, which sound, I think, our listeners can liken it to pixels on a detector. They're yes. just big pixels. Very big pixels. And then you use more statistics to figure out where that that gamma ray actually came from. Yes. On the crystal. Uh, okay. Would you would you like to talk about the statistics first, or <laughs> from from that point, knowing where the gamma ray came from, the math and the linear algebra? that you use to backtrack the actual image. We can talk about statistics. Okay, yeah. sounds great. Oh, look at his face. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's only statistics, it can't be that bad, right? <laughs> yeah, that's what we all say. Right, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, have at it. You Have at it. You talk about the statistics and I might, I'm very skeptical when it comes to statistical phenomenon. And that, I mean, that's to say that I know that uh, um, spec works and all the all this stuff works. Right. But I just, I really enjoy pointing out 
that it is statistics. Oh, yes. That, that you're really, it's not, I think people have this big assumption that it's like, oh, it's a scientific process. Ergo, this happens, you get this result, and that's the exact right. thing that's occurring. This is the only thing that can <laughs> occur, and yeah. So, I, yeah, so this should be interesting. So. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, starting from the beginning, the whole idea of having a, a gamma ray being emitted from an isotope, that's already more or less statistical uh, because yeah, as you're, you're looking at the radioactivity of your isotope, that's a complex or a negative exponential in terms of how many photons are emitted when and, and that sort of thing, talking about um, different things like the half-life of your molecules. And it's very important for us because uh, in SPECT imaging, you want to have a long enough half-life so that you can actually produce your isotope and then get it into the body. Mm -hmm. But you also want it to be short enough so that A, um, it's eliminated from the body fairly quickly, but B, um, the the amount of photons that are emitted in a certain time are, are also based on the half-life of it. Mm -hmm. And so that's why, you know, like I said earlier, technetium is one of the uh, workhorses for spec because it's kind of in that sweet spot. It has a half-life of six hours. Um, so it gives us enough time to actually get the isotope and, and inject it or, or whatever, uh, but then also gives us enough signal in our, our spec image. So that's also, like I said, that was, that's also probabilistic and statistical mm -hmm. in nature. Uh, and so there's that part of it. Um, but even after it emits it, um, it's more or less statistical in terms of where it's going to emit and, and in what direction, I should say. Um, and as it's passing through the rest of the body, uh, whether or not it interacts with tissue and, and deposits some of its energy, scatters off into a different direction, mm -hmm. or even gets absorbed entirely, is also statistical. Um, just based on uh, the Beer-Lambert law, mm -hmm. uh, one of my favorite laws <laughs> in all of optics for maybe obvious reasons. Uh, and so then, uh, like I was saying, the, the directionality of your gamma ray is statistical, uh, which also determines whether or not it passes through your collimator or your pinhole aperture. And then again, uh, Beer-Lambert law comes in as it tries to deposit its energy inside the scintillation crystal. That actually plays a big role, um, the, the Beer-Lambert law in that case, because of the fact that um, we end up using these crystals that have some finite thickness to them. Like in the current project that I'm working on, our crystal is a centimeter in thickness. Mm -hmm. um, and so that gives us uh, what we call sufficient stopping power to our crystal. And so it, sufficient stopping you know, in terms of stopping each gamma ray. Um, but that also causes errors because if you have a, gamma ray that's traveling um, at an oblique angle, so not straight on, um, you can have this issue where you don't actually know at what depth it interacted with the crystal. Um, so that's all statistical, again, at what depth it, it interacted. And there's some, some efforts here and there, uh, I'm working on one right now, to actually be able to estimate that depth of interaction. So then by doing that, we can estimate, um, like we said earlier, the uh, position in the xy plane, the, the 2d plane on the crystal where it interacted, but also the depth. And that gives us additional information, allows us to um, get better resolution out of our reconstructions. Because we, I, I deal with something uh, similar only in the sense that if you don't know, if you, have a, if you have a ray coming in at an angle and you don't actually know the z height that it interacts at, you can imagine if you, like if you have a ladder and on the ground it's at 
you know, x equals zero. But if you went up the ladder a couple feet, then the amount you moved over an x is different. So right. I can imagine that that adds uncertainty. Right, that's exactly it, yeah. Yeah, and then obviously there's, there's noise, statistical Poisson noise um, inherent inside the electronics and, and the detection systems in general. Um, and so we have to counteract that as, as best as we can. And there's various methods that we can do um, inside of our, our reconstruction processes. Uh, yeah, and so again, because it's Poisson, um, everything is dependent upon how many photons we can collect. Um, and that's one of the that's one of the tricky parts of SPECT is that we're trying to do quite a bit with not a lot of photons. When you think about mm -hmm. it, we, we're kind of light starved. We, we kind of are. We we very much are light starved uh, compared to other more conventional optical mm -hmm. techniques. Um, so yeah, that's. That's one of the big limiters, really. Because uh, like when you think about it, you know, if we have, a, say, a 5-millimeter hole that's at, say, a distance of half a meter away, the percentage of gamma rays that are going to actually go through that hole is just very minimal. Yeah. 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 So we just lost a lot of information. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Right. So if you could get more of that information, that's something that I'm working on, too, is... is trying to get more and more of that light in without reducing your resolution. So that's, again, that's one of the, the issues with SPECT, I suppose. Because we're so light-starved, we want to be able to open up our, our aperture holes, our pinholes, but that inherently blurs our image because then there's all these different directions that can go in instead of selecting just one direction. Right, right. There's more uncertainty as to where that gamma ray actually passed through your aperture. Correct. Because it's no longer... Uh, infinitely small or whatever. Right. Yeah. Yeah, Matt, again, Matt Tubman, gosh, I, we should, uh, I, I reference him too much. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe yeah. we should interview him. Sometime. Yeah. We, yeah. Um, but he had this, this quote where he said, like, you never have too much light. I think mm -hmm. maybe he was quoting Grievenkamp, John Grievenkamp. But the idea was in any optical system, you will never have too much light. Which, you know, is kind of true. Pretty, pretty true. As long as your electronics can handle it. Yeah. Right. Um, and you guys are throwing away, not you guys, but the system, right. it sounds like it's throwing away a ton of these gamma rays. Necessarily yes. so, but still. Not enough. Yeah. Right. And so there's been some efforts, uh, mostly, actually, I think, uniquely in the preclinical, so animal imaging areas uh, of SPECT, where instead of having this, like in a CD scan, you know, instead of having this thing that rotates around your, your object, what we do instead is we have, say, eight or 16 or maybe even more cameras that are uh, statically positioned. Um, so they're always in place in, in the same position um, around your body. Um, and so because of that, they cover more of the, the solid angle around mm -hmm. your body, you know, increase your sensitivity by eight or 16 mm -hmm. in that case. Hmm. Um, okay, so we, so there's a lot of statistics, there's <laughs> yes. a lot of assumptions, there's a lot of potential room for error. I think for people, have you, have you taken statistics here? Or? Uh, well, audience, audience, I, yeah, I take that. <laughs> okay, yeah, did you like it? Not really, actually. <laughs> uh, that's, did you like it? Yeah. Neil? Yeah. Uh, well, that's... 
Yeah, well, for me, it's like I quite like the way uh the professor teach is really interesting. But、mm. whenever I run into the questions, it's just out of my brain. A lot of stuff I have to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's an interesting topic. Yeah, yeah, and lots of fun with it. Yeah,、and、yeah. I think one of the issues with most people in statistics or probability or both even is that it's a very non-intuitive section of math. So、yeah. Certain things, like you think logically, this should happen, but it's yeah, like the complete opposite, and everything. Yeah, everything doesn't work. Yeah. No, I hated it. Yeah. I、oh, mean,、why? I <laughs> because of, because of that. Yes.、Yeah. It's. it's、uh, I guess I was spoiled with this idea that like other other fields of math. You're getting to a hard answer, right? right? There's a, a singular. Yeah, right. There's a singular answer in statistics. A first of all, I couldn't ever tell what they wanted me to do when reading questions. <laughs> me too. Say,、yeah. Actually, at first, I think maybe my English is too bad <laughs> to understand the question. Oh my god, it's horrible. No, it's not your English. It's I think it's about half the battle in yeah figuring yeah. out what、yeah. you're supposed to be doing. And、uh, and then B, it just was frustrating to me to say like, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna.、Uh, Fit some model to this data, I think is a fair description, and it's not accurate in the sense that it's not describing the true phenomenon. But you're taking a large amount of data and you're trying to distill it into a model which act which represents the outcome pretty well. If you、right. did it a bunch of times, most of the time you'd probably get this result. Was really just、ugh. yeah, and I always think it's a really risky yeah, a risky task.、Yes. Yeah, it's like once you make a a single wrong assumption,、mm-hmm. then it maybe your result you get you think is oh my god, it's definitely to be be like this and totally wrong. Yeah, yeah, it just it's always impressive to me. Like spec is really impressive that it works yeah, because definitely having gone through statistics, I don't know. I、That's、think I've、true. taken three statistics classes. We just、oh, finished one. Yeah, I've had two. Okay. I don't know why I thought I'd learn it.、I'd、you want to handle、did. that. You want to be a master of that. Yeah. Well, I have to take it a few more times. <laughs>、uh, but it's always impressive knowing all that goes in, knowing that all of these have associated uncertainties, knowing that fundamentally, you can never say for certain this is what's happening. You're、right. saying over a huge number of、uh, trials. Most of the time, this is probably what will happen. Right. This is what we think is happening. <laughs> yeah. But at the end of the day, you're getting useful images. Right.、Um, which is just really impressive to me. Yeah. And you see it a lot more, I guess, in in biology or or、um, sciences like that. You'll see it in some fields of physics, but optics, especially for us for fabrication, we really don't deal with statistics really... too frequently. Besides, yeah, taking means. Yeah. Things like it's that. Not, yeah. Basically, for us, I think the most we use Gaussian distribution. Yeah, yeah, and that's、sure. all basically. Yeah, when you're looking at your grades at the end of the semester, <laughs> trying to decide if you're gonna if the class will be curved. Yeah. yeah, I use that one all the time. Yeah. <laughs>、um, but but the fun so the fun doesn't end there. It's not just statistics because you guys、uh, then additionally go on and do some pretty complex.、Uh, Linear algebra, yes, or it might be beyond linear algebra. I don't really know.、It's、mostly linear algebra, yes. Okay, so we so we have all these statistics. We get some location at the end of our 
photomultiplier tubes. Hmm. So then what's the math? How do you reconstruct this image? Well, actually, before before we even get to that step, there's, there's some um, statistics in linear algebra that goes into that. Um, and so one of the things that we do instead of this anger arithmetic that I was talking about earlier is uh, we go into um, this iterative reconstruction algorithm. Uh, and so iterative, iterative means that we basically start off with you know, a guess, more or less, and then we um, go through our iteration and get a better guess, and then get a better guess after that, and using the previous guess as our starting point each time. So what we do uh, in SPECT is we'll use something called maximum likelihood estimation maximization. So working backwards a little bit, we want to maximize our estimate of the likelihood of where this photon came from. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so what we're doing is basically we take all the data that we get from our photomultiplier tubes. We just have voltage readings here and there. And what we do from that is we uh, basically iterate it, I will say. Uh, and what we're doing is we're uh, basically comparing if we took our best guess and simulated it through our system, we then compare it to the data that we actually got, and that is our correction term, basically. So we apply that correction term to our guess of our object. Mm -hmm. So then we start that all over again, and so we iterate that off, um, basically just taking our guess, passing through the system, and then um, guess and check, basically, mm -hmm. guessing at what our image would look like if we had this certain object. <laughs> and so if we have done our iteration correctly and, and put in the correct parameters here, and there's a couple nuances to that, um, eventually what will hopefully happen is our iterations, our guesses at our object will converge to a certain point. Yeah, and so that will say that um, the data that we got matches up perfectly with what would happen if we simulated our guess of our object through a system. Right. So then we stop it there and we say, okay, that's our best guess, and no, we're not going to get any better. Um, so then, after that, we go through the tomographic re reconstruction, which at the core of it is um, more or less based on the radon transform, which is complex integral we math. Don't, we don't need to get into that. We don't need to get much. into that. Um, but we basically, like I was saying earlier, back project or, or back trace these, these rays uh, backwards through the pinhole, and then we can form our 3D representation of our object from there. And that's really heavily just using linear algebra, kind of inverse. The, yes, the maximum likelihood estimation is completely linear algebra. Okay. Um, and so because of that, it's, it's kind of nice because then instead of trying to offload all of this onto our CPU instead mm -hmm. of our, our big computers, we can use GPUs and, and program those into the GPUs because those are very good at mm -hmm. doing fast uh, yeah. matrix math. Uh, okay, so what is your, as much as you can talk about it, I guess, mm -hmm. what's your research on? How does it incorporate with SPECT? So uh, my, my main focus uh, will be working on uh, what we call adaptive apertures. So I've described this kind of non-conventional aperture, which, which you have a pinhole that's of a certain size and it selects rays out as the radioactive isotope is emitting gamma rays. Um, like I said, it, it's very, it throws away most of the light, which is a problem, but we can't open it further because then our resolution goes down. 
So instead, what we want to be able to do is kind of get the best of both worlds. Uh, and so what we want to be able to do is get collect images from the same system that have both high resolution or high sensitivity. Mm -hmm. So what we end up doing is we have this array of pinholes, say like a three by three grid, that can all be independently controlled. Um, and so as you open, say if you have all of them open at once, then you actually end up with nine overlapping copies of the same image. Mm -hmm. And we can kind of tease out what each of those individual images are, but not, not very great. Um, so we get that, but we get great sensitivity. So instead of doing that, we can also close, say, all of them except for one. And so then in that case, we get one image, low sensitivity, but we know it's good resolution, high resolution. Mm -hmm. um, and so we can go back and forth between those cases, or we can even play these games where we have different patterns open on the face of our aperture mm -hmm. um, to go back and forth between uh, high resolution, high sensitivity, and even go somewhere in the middle. So that'll be a lot of my dissertation work. I've already started on some of it, um, trying to be able to control those remotely and, and wirelessly, which is proving to be a little <laughs> difficult, but we'll, we'll get there. Uh, and then in the end, what we want to be able to do is actually produce some sort of an algorithm or, or um, a process for determining you know, what pinholes we want open and when as it's rotating around our object. Uh, because we can use just kind of a shoot from the hip kind of method where we just say, well, let's pick this one and have it open right now. Or we can try and say, well, these earlier images had really good, a lot of light coming in, but low resolution. So let's close some of the pinholes. And so we can kind of play those games and, and maybe even use something kind of like a machine learning type algorithm um, in order to determine what pinholes be able to be And the application at the very end of this um, is to, uh, we want to be able to image uh, dopamine receptors, actually. So in your brain, when someone is diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, you have these two structures on your two halves of your brain. And what happens in Parkinson's is as the disease progresses, uh, one half will start to shrink a little bit before the other one does. And current spec systems, which can see the structures, they can't see the size difference yet, though. Mm -hmm. And so we want to be able to distinguish between this kind of shrunken half and the whole half. Mm -hmm. And that'll allow us to diagnose Parkinson's earlier and mm -hmm. get better treatment and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so this is all, this is actually, instead of using technetium, using an iodine isotope. Huh. That's impressive, actually. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. It is. It's it's a unique aspect of uh, biomedical research in that you know your research. Well, you don't. I guess you don't know, but it's pretty likely that your research will positively impact people's lives. Yeah. You know, it's it's a nice yeah. thing to have in the back of your pocket. Yeah. Especially we, when you're slaving away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, cool. So let's. So that's extremely impressive, um, and these systems are impressive. The math is complicated, and it's, I think people don't really appreciate how much goes into these systems, that's true. or that they are built. I mean, this, they existed yeah. a while ago. Right. Yeah, because it seems like quite easy when you watch the whole process without knowing the technology behind it. Right, and it has already existed for a while. Yeah, yeah. 
So in your mind, how is it? How's the what can I say? How's the progress for this kind of technology compared、uh, to the past? Yeah. I mean, it's made a lot of strides、uh, in terms of, especially a lot of it has to do with some of the processing capabilities that we're we can do these days.、Um, not only the statistical processes, but just computing power in general. As computing power gets better and better, we can do more and more things,、um, and people keep coming up with these different ideas of how to estimate. Uh, how to estimate, you know, the position and the depth of interaction and things like that, and they keep coming up with new math to be able to do that. And so a lot of it has to come down to the math and, and、mm-hmm. the processing power that we're capable of. Because,、uh, like I said, the, the anger or the anger camera is largely unchanged.、Mm-hmm. I have my current project is working on a spec system from the nineteen eighties, and、wow. the only thing that we have to change are The electronics so that it doesn't do the anger arithmetic. We can keep in place the old crystal, the old photomultiplier tubes,、uh, <laughs> the old aperture if we really wanted to.、Uh, so yeah, the electronics are mostly the same. We just need to change the processing. Okay, that sounds <laughs> oh my god crazy kind yeah, of yeah yeah that sounds crazy to me. Yeah, I don't know of any other field. Where the technology isn't like grossly different, right? You know, year to year, much less five years or ten years apart. And I think it's nuts too. I don't know.、Uh, I don't know if this is your experience in China, but here usually people will like you'll get an injury, you'll be at the doctor's or whatever, and they'll say like, okay, well you have to get a spec scan, you have to get an MRI,、mm-hmm. and you go and if you have health insurance,、mm-hmm. it's fine. You get it done. You look at the receipt. Or if you don't, you look at the receipt and you'll say, "I think MRIs run you like forty thousand." MRIs are very expensive, if not more.、Yeah. In fact, actually, I remember speaking to someone at the hospital, and they, if not more, is,、uh, and you're saying that specs are relatively inexpensive, but I know that it's not like a. It's not trivial, or anything, right? Right. Yeah. It's not like I'll go get a spec scan and ice cream cone and call it a day. <laughs>、um, it, I mean, they're like wildly expensive.、Right. And it definitely, in one part, it's the the health industry and the price of or the cost of of tests in the U.S. But just with all the stuff going on, it makes a lot more sense、mm-hmm. why it's so expensive. You know,、yeah. I don't know if that's the case in China, but well, I mean, China is totally different, actually. Really? Yeah, it's totally different because basically people all have insurance for it,、mm-hmm. so not really care about that.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just、so that's the daily. That's where the daily spec scans come from. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We don't want to get too many of those because of the radiation thing. But, yeah. huh? Yeah, it's just it's it's just interesting to think about. Yeah, I'll complain a little less, I guess, if I have to get a spec scan. Well, let's hope you don't have to get a spec scan. Yeah, but it seems like people, even though we do not have that kind that kind of issue, people still do not want to do that. Definitely, right?、Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like it seems like okay if I do that, is that mean something really horrible had to happen to me? Yeah, people will have that kind of worry. Yeah, that's valid. That's valid. <laughs>、yeah. um, so, switching gears, then, what are some challenging things you've run into in grad school?、Uh, balancing, balancing everything,、mm-hmm. uh, because you know, as most grad students know. Uh, you have a certain set of expectations as far as research goes, but then also you're taking classes at the same time. And so, yeah, it's 
it's tricky to balance going to class, getting all your homework done, setting your exams. That's the biggest challenge I think for me is just trying to balance that, and then also time. You, know, you just don't have enough time in the day to, to do everything that you wanted to do. I, I I would argue that you're pretty successful at it. So the next question is going to be <laughs> tips because. Uh, you manage to hike, you run, you run races, um, you go to hockey games, and you consistently uh, beat me in every class I've taken with you. So I don't what's know about that. So I, what's my secret? Pretty close. Maybe not like optomechanics or something, but what's your secret? What's You know, it's one of those things where uh, you just have to have some sort of a work ethic, uh, mm-hmm. you know, work ethic to, to know that this only lasts for a finite amount of time and, and you can get through it and you will get through it. Um, and I think part of it too is, is a kind of on a semester to semester basis my kind of attitude changes about certain things because, you know, as you progress in grad school, obviously you kind of shift away from doing classwork, but you're still mm-hmm. taking classes here and there and you're trying to get more research done. Um, and so in certain regards, the last year or so has been probably the most difficult of, of my grad school career because I've taken, I'm still taking classes, but I'm trying to get a lot of research done at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of it just comes from work ethic, and um, beyond that, luck, I suppose, here and there. <laughs> yeah. You get lucky here and there where uh, you have some time off right at the right time, and uh, and I think, yeah, having other things to do actually helps quite a bit because then you have a distraction or you know, right, some right. sort of a stress relief from some way to kind of disconnect from school. Yes, I think is really important. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe just calm down. Yeah, right. Calm yeah. Down. I think it's really important. Is we were talking with Christine and Chase about it that if you're always on about your research, always thinking about it, you don't make a you don't make as much progress, and b I think you get burned out a lot quicker. Yeah, so. I still feel burned out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so but quicker. Is yeah, better. right. Uh, so you you run right? Uh, any other activities? Yeah. Activities? Yeah, I mean, like you said, hiking. I, I mm-hmm. like to go into the Catalina Mountains, and, and while I'm up there, I'll usually try to take a picture too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, people in Tucson always hiking. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's so beautiful. Right. It's really yeah, close. Yeah. yeah. So. Huh. Okay. And then in terms of selecting a grad school. Yeah. Or figuring out, I guess. Let's say that I know someone uh, who's interested in biomedical stuff mm-hmm. or who's interested in helping people, but they don't, maybe they don't necessarily want to become a uh, care provider. Mm-hmm. So they're looking at grad schools, they're looking at biomedical, they're looking at optical. What's your advice to them? Uh, well, my advice to them is, so I guess my, my advice is two-pronged. Um, so... I would think about long-term you know, goals, job prospects, that kind of thing. You know, what, when you graduate from this kind of a program, whether it be it biomedical engineering or optics or biochemistry or whatever, um, you know, what what kind of jobs are you going to be looking at, and, and will you do you think you'd like doing that? Is is one of those things. But then the other the other thing is you have to think about day to day activities, um, and so you know if you have you have some sort of a project that the end goal is really cool and, and you really like the idea of it, but all the day-to-day stuff bores you or you don't like doing it at all. It makes it very difficult. On the flip side, if you really like all your day-to-day stuff, but it doesn't amount to anything, then that kind of 
defeats yeah. the purpose of spending five years in grad school. <laughs> right. So it's one of those tricky, tricky balancing acts where you got to balance uh, both looking at the long term, even in terms of just your dissertation and day to day activities. You know, like uh, it's a little strange to think about, but on a day to day basis, I don't do any optics mm-hmm. for the most part. I do a lot of, I actually do a lot of mechanical engineering, mm-hmm. electrical engineering type activities. Uh, programming is another big one in, in my area. Uh, but then all of it comes together at the very end and you apply it to this optical technique. And, um, right. I think yeah. I think optics is kind of unique in that in that it it's draws from or optical systems utilize a ton of other subfields. Absolutely. Maybe yes. not subfields, that's might be derogatory to people yeah. in mechanical, but uh, other fields, you know. So yeah. you're probably familiar with it, but yeah, yeah. I actually think for optics, it's really hard to divide it to divide it into uh, a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, considering, actually, there are only three universities in, in United States have an optical college. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the two connect with other technologies, and especially these days, people always want to see whether we can handle this in optics or not. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and I just think it's really multidisciplinary. I do. Absolutely. From, so for your work, you, you say you're doing mechanical, programming, math. Mm-hmm. Um, electronics. Electronics. Yeah. For mine, uh, I'm doing a ton of programming, math, um, not so much mechanical, but a little bit of electronics. I don't know. Yeah, for me, it's like, well, I think it's quite like uh, programming, definitely. And uh, mechanical design a little bit, and uh, electricity stuff a little bit, mm-hmm. and uh, the most important thing is you have to know how to use all the measurement machine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and basically that's all. Yeah. Well, no, I think you're forgetting a big one in uh, material science. Oh yeah, I'm so sorry about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's connect with the material science also because I have to treat different materials and they have different affection with, uh, which will choose which kind of polishing compound you're gonna choose. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. right. Yeah, materials actually they factor in quite a bit to spec as well, mm-hmm. uh, not only for the crystal but then also for the aperture, uh, yeah. because it's one of those strange things where you don't you don't really think about it at first. But you know, how many materials, off the top of your head, uh, stop hammerings? Do you know? I mean, I can think of like three maybe, but I know two that we would use basically. Uh, one of them is lead, yeah. Which you might guess because, like, when you, you know, when you go and get an X-ray of your teeth or something like that, you put the lead coat on. Um, the other one that we mainly use because of mechanical properties is t- uh, tungsten. Yeah, and, and then I was going to say your crystal. Yeah, well, the scintillating. Yeah, well, that doesn't really count because we want it to just <laughs> absorb and not. Hey man, you didn't so specify. That's uh, <laughs> fair enough. Yeah, so most of our yeah most of our uh, apertures and things like that are made out of tungsten, or we'll use a lead, and then we'll use some sort of a um, kind of a propping up material, we'll say, because lead doesn't have the greatest mechanical properties, and so we need something to provide that stability. Yeah, which is where the mechanics comes in. Right. So I guess that's something good to consider if you're thinking about going to grad school. Uh, or if you're thinking about staying in, <laughs> is that especially for optics, it's very multidisciplinary, mm-hmm. and there are continuing interesting problems depending yeah. on your outlook. 
there's continuing issues, and they're <laughs> interesting or not, depending on what. Uh, one other thing that I think is something to consider, and I'm really curious to hear your perspective on this, is that you do not make much as a grad student. I know that it's like a running joke that it's like you're, you're uh, kind of being exploited. Right. But like we get paid. I think we get paid a, a livable amount, certainly. Right. I don't, I don't it's have basically to... livable, but not much else. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't have too much complaints because I, I enjoy grad school. But I know that a number of people do feel like, man, yeah. this is bare minimum. And we're working on really interesting, hard stuff. And stuff that eventually will make someone a lot of money, realistically. We make some of these telescopes or mirrors right. and... Uh, People pay a lot of money for that, yeah. and we see a little money. Yeah. You're working on spec stuff, people, which in the future will improve a spec machine, and people are going to make a lot of money off that. But especially we don't see it it's healthcare, yeah. especially because it's healthcare, right? Uh, yeah, we went into the wrong field. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I think that that's really something to consider as well if you're trying to think about going into grad school because it's really enticing. You know, you see these people who graduate with their masters or their PhDs or don't go to grad school uh, or didn't even go to undergrad for that matter. Right. And they're making way more, you know, at least to start yeah. out. Yeah. At least to start out. But um, yeah, but it, it still is tempting when you, you're coming into school and it's like, great, another problem. <laughs> I'm getting paid a fairly small amount. I could be getting paid a lot yeah. to work on less hard problems. I really like your point of view. Like when you choose whether you have to go to the grad school or not, you have to think about long-term, like, what's your job right. in the future. Yeah, that is very necessary because, well, seldom people will think about that. They just think, uh, maybe one more degree, then I can uh, have more pay on something like that. But when they graduate, they will think, okay, okay, definitely they can find a job, but they just feel, I deserve more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was one of the, my main motivations, actually. It wasn't the pay or anything like that. It was more that when I came out, the, the jobs that were available to me that I could possibly get into weren't weren't quite what I wanted to do because I wanted to design things and, and validate them and produce mm-hmm. new and exciting technologies. Yeah, so. yeah, definitely. <laughs> I think that is the most important thing when you choose to go to a grad school. Yeah, some people say that, okay, you want to be a PhD means you want to be a professional of this field. Mm-hmm. Then you have to... Uh, make yourself believe that you are the one who want to do some research stuff and mm-hmm. uh, be excited about the result. If you are not excited about it, then maybe maybe you think you have to consider it more. Yeah. yeah. And you, if you want to go into academics, right? yeah, if you want to be yeah. a professor or something, you have to. Yeah, yeah. because yeah. it take five or even more years. Yeah. yeah. Right. You have to consider about that. And then, like you're saying, like if you want to... For us, at least, it's pretty common that if you get out and you get a job, you'll kind of be the head of a research development team. Right. Yeah. And otherwise, you, I don't know how, I, I don't know if, much less how easy it'd be to get into that same position otherwise. Spend a lot of time in the division, yeah. probably, yeah. But, it, but, like, but it's not super easy, so right. that's a big plus. If you, if you want to do that, that's a big plus at grad school. Yeah. That was one of the big motivators for me, so. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I really like a... Uh, oh, well, it's like yesterday I talked with my friend and she just graduated from her PhD, but she's not an optics student. And I lear- I asked her, okay, so what you learn from your PhD life? And he- she said like, okay, this won't make you 
life become easier at all. <laughs> yeah, you cannot uh, expect like okay, I get a PhD degree, I can find a better job, I can satisfy myself. Well, this is not the case. But you will learn how to deal with all this kind of situation.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, like find yourself more,、mm-hmm. know yourself more.、Right. Yeah.、Mm-hmm. Darn, I was really hoping for a better job out of all this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there goes that.、Um, all right, well, I got I got one last question for you, and、right. this one is pretty far,、uh, pretty random, I guess. But because I've taken so many classes with you, what class do you recommend? And what class do you recommend? specifically, I mean, what class do you recommend in optics? I know what mine is. Okay, I know a couple of mine, but more generally, what topic would you recommend?、Uh, People learn, like look up for themselves. Either if they're in grad school or even if they're not in grad school, what do you think is just like an interesting, valuable topic? You know, you're gonna hate this, but I'm gonna say statistics.、Oh, uh, and this is this is one of those things where、uh, coming from you know biomedical engineering and that background of reading all these papers、mm-hmm. and, and finally in this last class learning about what what the heck is this p value kind of、mm-hmm. thing. You know, where does this p value come from, and what does it actually mean?、Uh, One of the things that I've discovered over the years is that the vast majority of people—not the vast majority—quite a few people that publish papers,、um, they have issues with statistics. Yeah. Either they use the wrong test or they glean the wrong conclusion from a test.、Uh, and so when I have to look at a paper and you know, kind of criticize it or, or、um, look at it and say what's wrong with it or what do they do poorly.、Um, That's one of the first things I'll look at is the statistics of it. There,、uh, there is an interesting paper and then dis- discussion on that paper that I listened to.、Uh, it's a common term I think to hear p hacking. Okay. You know, yeah. But people, people will be p hacking. They'll try to get a p value that is statistically significant by going about different things to make tricks on it. Yeah. And it sounds really devious and negative.、Right. And this other person described it as the garden of branching paths. And so far as you've spent a ton of time in lab, you have all this data, and you try to do something like this with the data, and the results are okay. But then you could alternatively try something like this,、mm-hmm. and then at that next step, just a, it's a bunch of branching paths, and you probably are not consciously trying to find some way to get something. Useful out of your data, so it's not necessarily malicious, but、right. it could be. <laughs> it could be, and I—I I mean, I really do. In a general sense, I think I really have to agree with you that statistics are so integral to a lot of research and a lot of science, and they're—it's not appreciated, right? Especially yeah, to, I mean, I—I want to say especially to people not in science, but I want to go a step further and say especially even to anyone. Because、yeah. I've met people in science, and they have this—I、uh, would argue—misconception that that the sciences. Who was it? Was it Feynman? I'm going out on a limb here. I think Feynman said that if you want to, if you want to know what's likely to happen, go into the sciences. If you want to know the facts, go into math. Which is, you know,、yeah. I kind of agree to it to a sense that a lot of the sciences are statistical phenomena. If、right. you don't get statistics, you don't. Yeah, and especially these days, people, uh, people tend to get more data as possible.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, which always helps. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it it does help. It's. Yeah, I think it always helps. 
Yeah. I think of too many ways that it couldn't help. I mean, I, I think of, I think it doesn't necessarily always help because some papers will bombard you with data. That's true. And you get, and it's it's so tedious to go through it that you kind of assume like, yeah, okay, yeah. it's it's probably good instead of sifting through one by one. Yeah. yeah um, but that's a that's an offshoot topic. So you recommend statistics? Yeah, statistics is a big one. Um, I mean, that's that's for anybody, but not, not somebody, yeah. even someone not in optics for sure. Um, within optics, some of the the imaging science classes that I've taken have been very enlightening. I mean, obviously because they affect my everyday life and, and all the research that I'm doing. But I mean, as you've discovered, I, I know Logan. Um, some of the techniques that we use in in these image science um, algorithms and things like that can be applied to other areas, such, right, as, right. such as your field. Uh, so yeah, I, it's it's a very interesting math to look at. It's very um, very intriguing that they can you know, kind of tease out some of these characteristics of, of your images or your data in general. Mm -hmm. I would yeah, I would agree with you. I think. Generally, realistically, statistics is what I'd recommend, or some literacy in statistics and probability theory. Yeah, you can pick up a lot of good books really cheap, uh, which talk about that. I would also recommend. I really enjoyed this terrible Matt Dubin's course of uh, <laughs> optical design because it throws us as students into the role of having to build real optical systems. Yeah, definitely. And it takes you out of this realm of like theoretical topics and research and into like oh man i need to build something right. and make it work yeah uh i might also suggest good programming learning how to be a good programmer because i run into that all the time in lab and it is frustrating not only i think one of the things that especially engineers in general kind of struggle with is um, not only writing good code so that it works and, and doesn't have any weird exception where the code breaks but being able to write readable code and yeah. logical step-by-step yeah. -step code. Because yeah. one of the things that I hate <laughs> the very most is having to look through other people's code yeah, and figure out what they're doing. That's true. Yeah, you're like, what are these variable names? Right. What? Yeah, yeah. Unless they comment really well and they have a very uh, ordered mind yeah. in how they, they organize yeah. their code. The most awkward situation is like, he or she also adds some comment on it. And you still cannot understand yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's always a good one. Uh, what about you? Do you have any recommended topics or courses? Well, for me, I was actually quite enjoy the mechanical design class. Because mm. well, maybe that is very important to my research, because I always have to, if I do not have a stable mechanical stuff, then it will ruin all my experiments. <laughs> yeah. So I quite enjoy that class and you can learn a lot and mm -hmm. analyze a lot. And I think uh, you can see it outside. Yeah, like right. you go anywhere and you can yeah, appreciate you can the see mechanics. It. Yeah, that's true. And you can find the beauty of it. Mm -hmm. And another class is, there should have a similar class here, but I do not take it. It's about the error analysis stuff. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, that is very important. And I think it's necessary because whenever you get your experiment result, you have to analyze it and to see, okay, should I trust it or not? Right. Yeah. Yeah. All the air that... Yeah. Or, yeah, all or the even error. to look at it and say, well, where does air come from? 
Yeah, 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 yeah. Because in my case, I have to do a lot of error analysis. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that is very important.、Huh. Yeah. Well, I think that about ties it up. So, yeah, thank you for talking to us. Yeah, yeah. thanks for having me. As always, thank you for listening to this week's episode. We look forward to any comments or feedback you may have. To leave a comment, please visit our website at loft.optics.arizona.edu/podcast or our Facebook, which is SPL Report. Additionally, you can email us at thespotlightreport@gmail.com. Lastly, we would like to mention that we are always looking for new topics or people to interview. So, if you have a topic that you would like us to cover, please let us know. Thank you, and have a good week.